Liz Sumner, and this is I Always Wanted To, the podcast where I interview people who are doing things that others long to do. What have you always wanted to try? My guest today is Annie Handmer. Annie researches how individuals work together within complex systems of governance, geopolitics, international law and ethics to conduct cooperative science in extreme locations like Antarctica and outer space. Annie hosts the Space Junk podcast, and I originally invited her to talk about space tourism, but after learning about her background, I want to know so much more. Welcome, Annie. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here and be speaking to you. So tell us about how you started thinking about humanity's relationship to space. Well, this is an interesting question because most people in the space sector have a beautiful story about the first time they looked through a telescope or about, you know, lying out under the stars at night. And I did all of those things but you know, they just didn't do it for me. And um, I was actually always way more interested in the philosophy of space and the sociology of space, the way that humans relate to space and each other. And I think, I mean, I really, I really fell in love with space and the concepts around it through reading. So um, I read The Northern Lights series, which you might know, by Philip Pullman when I was maybe nine or ten. And um, I was just totally enraptured by the idea of layers of meaning and metaphysics and parallel universes. And it started a sort of an obsession, which my year five teacher, who is um, absolutely wonderful, Ingrid Holden, what a champ, really said, and she gave me a copy of this book called A Wrinkle in Time. It's a science fiction book by Madeleine Lengel. And it was all about these concepts of bending space and time and the way that you could conceptualize physics from a, a, a philosophical perspective. And I just thought that was great. And then the second thing I think that really led me to space junk itself was probably high school when I did this extracurricular activity called future problem solving Ooh. where, yeah, where four kids, I mean, we would have been 14, got in a room for two hours and ate copious amounts of lollies <laughs> and, um, and tried to solve this really curly scenario set in the future using a very rigorous set out way of going through the problem. And one of our topics for one of these was space junk. And it was set in 2040 and there was this problem of way too much space junk and it was causing issues with satellites and with astronomy and what were we going to do about it? And my team completely, I mean, we'd had so much sugar. We just decided, <laughs> why don't we create an internationally governed and very well regulated black hole using the Large Hadron Collider next to Earth? And that'll suck all of the space debris away. Now, of course, this is totally, totally not feasible, but the way that we went about presenting it as this regulated international approach was, was sort of so compelling that we got away with it. And we ended up getting to the nationals for that. So I got a trip to the Gold Coast. It was all very exciting. And I think that just like the whole experience of that and, and engaging with these topics that are just so outside the everyday was what got me. And yeah, that's probably why I then came back to these really 
extreme things to study later on. I love that concept, I, uh, the future problem solving. I, I commend your, your school system for, for creating that opportunity. Well, you know, it's international. So um, I think in the US and other places around the world, you can do future problem solving. So if you're listening, you can look it up and enter as a team or an individual. It's, um, it's a great thing for high schoolers. I will look for a link for that and put it in the show notes. But you didn't go into this as your beginning career, right? Tell me about your, your career and your, your field of study. Well, the first thing is I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And, <laughs> and I never have known. And I think that we actually do kids a disservice by asking them that question all the time. Because the idea that we do one job and then that's what we are, we're an accountant or we're, you know, a, a businessman, it really doesn't capture the wide variety of options that are open to us. And I think I always resisted that. But anyway, I finished school very early. I was um, 16 when I finished all my final exams. I'd skipped a year along the way and sort of tried to get out of school as quickly as possible to get to uni. And uh, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I did a law degree and I absolutely hated it. And in my first year of law, I had met this nice young man at the university doing a musical together who was an acrobat. And he was doing honours in this random subject called history and philosophy of science. And he said, well, you know, we'd, we'd been to lunch or something. And he said, oh, well, I've got to go to this class. Do you want to come along? And I said, all right. So I, I, I wandered along with him to this class thinking it would be a huge lecture. And it's this room with like six students and I'm one of them and the lecturer. And I just fell in love. I fell in love with the subject. We were talking about the history of the bomb in the class and the way that that had shaped scientific discourse through the Cold War and then fed into society and politics. I fell in love with the lecturer. She was incredible. And, and she's actually now my PhD supervisor. I fell in love with the subject, which I'm now doing a PhD in. And I also fell in love with the nice young man who's now my husband. So <laughs> all in all, it was really good. But anyway, I, I then I, um, I ran away from my law degree to do honours and study Antarctic scientists as it, within this department. And I studied cooperation between Antarctic scientists who were from the Soviet Union, France and the USA on a particular project at Lake Vostok during the Cold War. And then I thought, oh, I should probably get a job. So I wrote an application letter to a, a big international investment bank saying, look, I know I haven't studied economics. I know I haven't done maths since high school. I know I know nothing about finance, but you know what I know about? I, I know about philosophy and I know about society and I'm good at learning things. So what do you reckon? And they came back and they said, okay, come and do an internship. So I did. And they gave me a maths test, which I passed. They gave me an internship and I, I had to learn what EBITDA was and, and what was a balance sheet and how does revenue work? And, uh, I got through the internship and did well enough that they gave me a job. So I went and became an investment banker. Um, <laughs> and I mean, you're laughing and it's bizarre, right? I was there with all of these, these finance folk and I was a philosopher. I mean, I ended up with a degree in philosophy and 
I was sitting there thinking, you know, approaching all of my problems in, in banking. And in the back of my mind, I kept thinking, okay, well, I know that this is how we have to do it. I know that this is what an M&A model is and I could do it and I, you know, developed that capability. But in the back of my mind, I kept thinking, well, you know, philosophically, structurally, is this the way it ought to be? And I, I got to this point, I was very sleep deprived because, you know, investment bankers work long hours um, and it was 2 a.m. and I'd been working extremely long hours. Uh, I hadn't had a lot of sleep that week. And when I used to sleep, I would dream about my Excel models. And in my dreams, I would error check them and I'd be like sliding through the cells. I don't know if anyone else has had this experience. Do get in touch. But, <laughs> but in the morning, I'd wake up and... You know, so I'd be getting to bed about 3 a.m. I'd have a couple of hours sleep. I'd be up by six or seven with a list in my head of all of the errors. And then I'd go into the office and I'd fix them. So anyway, this was in very intense. And it was 2017. And I saw on the TV at 2 a.m. one night in the office by myself in the dark, listening to death metal on my headphones. Um, I saw Donald Trump and I saw, I saw what was happening in the world. And I thought, I don't know anything about politics and I don't know really anything about international relations or anything like that. But I know about structures and ways of thinking about these things. And I sort of just thought there's got to be more to it. I mean, anyone could do my job in banking, do it brilliantly and love it. And I liked it. And I was good at it, but it wasn't enough. And I just thought, I know it sounds selfish in a way, but I was like, if I have skills to do other things and think differently, then why am I forcing myself to think like everyone else? You know, why aren't wow. I thinking differently? Surely mm -hmm. that's a better use for existence. So yeah, mm -hmm. so I, I, uh, I, I quit and... <laughs> And I went and did a, enrolled in a PhD in something to do with space. And, and my boss at the time said, are you sure about this? Because like, I don't know what you think you're going to do. Are you going to end up at the UN or something? And, and I said, yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> um, and actually in April, I was meant to be at the legal subcommittee of the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space in Vienna. So I made it to the UN. But... <sighs> COVID happened. So that was, that's all been cancelled and postponed, but you know, it was, it was pretty exciting to, to finally make it there and, and feel like I'd achieved that. But yeah, it's interesting. And I, I don't know what you think about this, but when we think about what we're going to do when we grow up or what we'll do with our lives, how much we think about it from that meta level of what is our duty or what can we contribute? What should we contribute versus what do we want for our own lives? How would you think about that? Wow, that is, I, I would love to have a separate conversation with you just about thinking about what to do with our own lives. I have just finished a, a course based on the book, Designing Your Life, 
by um, Bill Burnett and Dave Evans, and they agree with you completely that that we we the idea of uh, thinking about how to what you're going to be when you grow up and thinking of it as one thing one path is absurd that we all have multiple lives within us and how to how to explore them how to ask questions and then do little um, prototypes to to answer those questions anyhow I'm going to talk to you about this later about uh, the, the whole idea of what do we do with our lives? That is a good topic. But I want to get back to space. And Let's talk about so, space. So, well, first, tell me about your podcast. So I started this PhD in the end of 2017. And I was doing research basically on how individuals think about space. And particularly in the Australian context initially, uh, it was all about what is this thing that we do with space? How do scientists who interact with space do that? What about the military? How do they use space? What about the private sector and communications and so on? And I realized that I didn't know much about this industry. And one thing about working in, in something like investment banking or any you know, big corporate thing is you learn while doing that how to get across an industry pretty quickly. Hmm. So, you know, if you've got only a day or two or even a couple of hours to be able to sound like you know what you're talking about, what you need to do to upskill, if you like, really fast. So you've got a bit of an understanding of how something works. So I realized for my PhD, I needed to do this, but on a big scale, this wasn't like a two day effort. This was going to be a years of effort. And so I just started talking to people and I went to conferences and I, I sort of stalked people online and then I'd go to the conference and just happen to bump into them. And, um, and I also started having great conversations about learning about people, you know, like you do where you ask people questions and I was doing that all the time. And I suddenly thought, well, if I'm enjoying these conversations, then maybe there are people in the world who want to hear this, who, you know, who'd be folding the washing and, and would love to hear a conversation about how someone thinks about space law in relation to mining of asteroids. I mean, it's a weird concept. And, and, and who am I to say that they shouldn't have that in their life? So I, so I just started saying to people, well, what if we record this? And I release it as a podcast. And they said, oh, okay. And then I realized, and this is a great secret for, for anyone out there, but if you so you know the saying that if you give a person a mask, they'll tell the truth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if you clip a microphone to someone's lapel, they will have the most engaged, deep, thoughtful conversation with you. And, and so I was like, okay, well, this is a great tool to actually get to know people I want to know and I want to do research on. So, it was just this, this great thing that turned into such a rewarding experience. And I, I started it with a $20 lapel mic set that I bought in Hong Kong. And I, it's really terrible. I mean, the early episodes, you can, you can barely hear, hear them. There's an episode I recorded on an airfield during a flight show in a hut uh, with, with a guy who's an expert in space warfare. And, and I mean, you could hear the aircraft going over. 
almost <laughs> unlistenable. But I, I thought, you know what? Someone might find this interesting. And in a world where everything's curated and there are so many podcasts where each sound is just, is crafted and there's sound effects and there's a bit of music and the mood's set and, and people speak like this. <laughs> you know, and they say, wow, the cosmos. It's like, <laughs> fine, that's great. But sometimes I just want to hear a couple of smart people say something interesting about something I don't know about. So, yeah, so that's my podcast. <laughs> that's wonderful. Um, well, I'm struck by the difference in our generations of the way that you think about space is so huge and universal and my background, I mean, I, I'm a child of the space age. I watched John Glenn's uh, or, Orbiting the Earth three times and, and Splashdown. And uh, the concept of space for me was, was just sort of astronauts that were like 12 different guys and uh, and the all it was all American and uh, and they would just they would go to the moon and then we forgot about them all and uh, uh, and so the the generation from from the 60s paying attention to space versus you now it, it's just oh this this is very different people people growing up now ask different questions and uh, and I find that absolutely fascinating. This is something I've looked at in my research because one of the things I'm really interested in is the narratives we tell ourselves about the way that we think. Mm -hmm. So mm. When, you, when you talk about what you think about when you think about space, you're thinking about the pioneering age of space, of these astronauts, you know, these, these larger-than-life characters, these symbols, really, of, mm -hmm. of a particular age. And mm -hmm. then you have this narrative of you, you watch them do this thing. And so it's stuck in your head. And it's really fascinating because I think, I think that we have this kind of way of looking at these extreme environments and at human achievement, which do take on a narrative quality and everyone's individual narrative about space is different. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there is a generational difference because I didn't grow up watching astronauts doing these things for the first time. I grew up with internet mm. and, you know, I, I remember this, the switch from like, for me, it was the switch from dial up to broadband internet. <laughs> um, I grew up chewing on floppy disks, you know, when I was teething, but, but by the time I came into my own, it was CDs and DVDs and, I kind of bridged the, the cassette tape to CD mm -hmm. age. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so the way that I think, I think is very shaped by the internet, by the prevalence of a multiplicity of ideas. So for me, it's less about what's the book that I read about this thing and what I know about this thing. And it's more about how do I sort through this complete mess of international perspectives and of intergenerational perspectives and of ideologies and all of these things that are around. How do I sort through that and put it into some sort of order through which I can understand it? I, I think that's really the way that I think about it. But, but you know, the way that you think about space 
is is valid and is right and is is the way that many people think about space you know what defining space is fascinating if you ask someone what is space oh yeah I mean, what kind like, of answers do you get well curiously in international law there's no accepted definition of space so most definitions will put it at a hundred kilometers altitude is where we get to space mm -hmm. but some say 80 and there are some debates even about you know where physically space begins so that's that's one side of it but people love to have arguments about whether space is international whether it's competitive whether it's you know congested and contested whether it's a warfighting domain mm. if you're if you're trump you know in the us it's space is a warfighting domain whether it's the place for the private sector and asteroid mining and the Elon Musk's of this world, mm -hmm. whether it's a global commons and an environmental heritage zone to be protected. Space is in, in ideological terms, constantly in flux because we change our definitions depending on who we are and what we want to do. And therefore as a collective, as a society, we construct an image and an understanding and a definition of space that's sort of the sum of all of those parts. And that can change, as you say, over a generation. So that's, that's another way of looking at it as well. Do you have a narrative that you recommend that people think, think about space in, in these terms in order to have the, the highest ideal oh well i mean my first answer is no <laughs> everyone can think about space in the way that they want to mm -hmm. and and i suppose my recommendation would be to 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 keep an open mind and to be aware of the ways that other people think about it i personally love going on deep dives into conspiracy theorist forums and um you know, the flat earth thing is fascinating. Um, not because I think the earth is flat. Absolutely, I don't. But, but because so many people do. And that, that on its own is brilliantly fascinating. And if you, if you encounter, and I've encountered flat earthers, I mean, I seek them out sometimes just for the, the interest of it. But if you talk to a flat earther and you say, they say the earth is flat and you say the earth is not flat, what sort of conversation is that? Yeah. Neither of you have learned anything and you, you actually can't have a conversation. There's a concept mm -hmm. in philosophy of science and sociology of science, which is that if you have a shift in the way that you think about things, or if you've got two dif very different, what we might call thought styles on something, they're actually incommensurable. And that word means that you can't actually have a conversation because for each of you, your fundamental definitions of what you're talking about are different. So, so no, I don't think that there's any particular way that you ought to think about space or think about how we relate to space. I think everyone's way of thinking about it is unique and special and different and valid. But, but I think it's good to be aware that, that yours isn't the only way and that you can actually ask people deeper questions than just, do you think X, do you think Y? you can go deeper and say, well, tell me how you think about that. That can be a more interesting conversation.
That's brilliant. So I originally wanted to talk to you about this because I was fascinated with the idea of space tourism. Uh, I, I knew that someday it would be possible for people to just to be able to go and see earth rise and, and stuff like that. So I wanted to talk to somebody who knew something about what's going to be possible. What do you see the space tourism world doing in the next five to 10 years? Gosh, this is fascinating. Well, the first thing is, I think it's brilliant that you want to go to space. And I think there are, there are many people in the world who desperately want to. Virgin Galactic is probably the main space tourism offerer. And I believe it's $250,000 to buy a ticket on a, on a sort of a space plane thing. And, um, and, and that's, that's probably the closest we can get at the moment. But the, the dream, I suppose, would not just be to go to the edge of the atmosphere and experience weightlessness and so on. It would, I guess, ideally be to go into space and perhaps, you know, orbit the Earth, be able to look at, at the Earth from space, um, maybe to go to the moon and to experience being on the moon and watching, watching the Earth rise and so on. That's... That is a really interesting idea. I talk to a lot of people who want to go and mine the moon or mine Mars or mine asteroids, and they're very excited about that. And, and I was in a webinar recently talking about this and someone said, well, what about other activities you could do on the moon? Like, what about bushwalking on the moon? You know, that's what we do in Australia. We go bushwalking. It's like hiking. Mm -hmm. Um, what if, what if you could go? And then we had these ideas. It was like, okay, well, you've got less gravity. So could you go sort of gliding? Like you don't have this the, the atmosphere, but you've got this thing. So is there a way that you could sort of jump off a high peak and just sort of float down or some, some sort of recreational activity? Anyway, I think that in terms of space tourism, if there is demand, then I think the private sector will get there. But the question is, is there demand? And mm. I, I think in the abstract there is, but at the moment it's still very dangerous to go to space. Uh, rockets do blow up alarmingly regularly. Mm. Uh, I, I think, you know, personally, I wouldn't be signing up right now um, <laughs> at this point in my life. I, and I know we were going to talk about this, but there are ways that you can experience a kind of space tourism without physically going because technology in a way I think has has overtaken rockets Tell in me. a sense well okay so two years ago I was in Bremen in Germany at the International Astronautical Congress which is an annual meeting of space scientists and people in the space industry and students and academics from around the world. And at Bremen, we had 6,000 people at this conference. And for a girl who's grown up in Australia, this was like, it, this was just huge. It was amazing. There were so many people from all over the world. There were so many companies, there were demonstrations. You could, you know, walk around and look at someone's rocket that they'd built and gosh, it was just so cool. Um, anyway, 
So if, if you want to go to space conferences, you can. But at this conference, there was a demonstration from Airbus of some VR technology that they have. Oh. And I have done VR before and found it kind of weird, like just made me feel a bit sick. But I put <laughs> on this VR headset mm -hmm. and I was on the space station. And I'm, I'm cynical about this stuff, but I had these two little clickers that were my hands and I had to lift a box in the, the payload and, and put it somewhere. And I did that. And you had to sort of pull yourself along the space station. And it felt a bit like you were in microgravity because everything you were seeing was responding in that way. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then you could do a spacewalk. So you step out of the space station and you're on your little tether in your spacesuit. And you can look around and it was so beautifully done that you could see the space station and then you look down below you and there's the earth turning <gasps> and you're floating. And I mean, I, you know, I've, I've never been one to get so whimsical about the idea of looking down at the earth from space because I think well, we've got pictures, we've got satellites, you know, you can, you can look at it. You could do Google earth. You can do planet labs and, and, and look, but actually experiencing it in VR, it was just mind blowing. And in many ways, I think a really inspiring experience. So that's VR brilliant. Is, there. is Airbus making this available? I think that the particular, the particular simulation they had, I'm sure if I'll go searching, I'm sure that they take it to different conferences mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. exhibitions. But I, I know that there are lots of VR experiences if you've got a headset that you can engage in. And I would recommend exploring space through VR because I do think it's a great way of doing it. And it was so effective. And, you know, because most of it's black, it's not too difficult yeah. on your brain with the rendering mm -hmm. and all mm -hmm. of that. I, I think it's a good one. So, um, yeah, you could definitely look into it and, and hopefully it's available. Oh, that, that could really scratch my itch. Yeah. <laughs> that, would, that would be wonderful. I've got and, some other ideas for yeah, you. Please. So these are all my ideas I came up with for how to do space tourism from home mm -hmm. or near enough. Okay. Um, so VR is the first one and I think fantastic. The next one is analogs, mission analogs. Have you oh. heard about this? Yes, like the one for the, the Apollo 13. Is that the where you... Uh, follow along with with everything that that happened. Um, okay, so yes. tell tell us more for people who don't know about it. Well, those are those are one sort of analog. The one that I'm talking about though is way more full on and experiential. Oh, oh, okay, okay. So um, there's a, a Mars Desert Research Station which is in Utah in the U.S. in the desert, and they take people and they plonk them in a fake Martian habitat for two weeks or more at a time and you're living as if you're on Mars and <gasps> this is a research thing so you've got scientists studying how you respond you know how does your mental health hold up how does your physical health hold up you have to do parts of the mission every day and if you want to leave the habitat you have to put on your full spacesuit and you can you, you go out in your spacesuit and you walk to the greenhouse, for example, to get your food. 
the cool thing about it is you're living with say six people and you've never met them before and suddenly you are with them 24 7 and you have to rely on them because your only contact with the outside world is through mission control and things will go wrong and you have to you know they have to send you a part to print on a 3d printer or whatever the case is and you learn through these processes a lot about yourself so if you're interested you can actually apply to go and be part of this oh <laughs> you i'm look so, so happy. I, I am i'm so excited i didn't know these things existed do, do you have the contact information or can we can we look it up so i can put yeah. it in the show notes you can hit up google and just type in mars desert research station analog okay. and it should it should come up but we can find a web link Okay. Um, I, will, one, I will put it in the show notes. The other one that's quite fun is if you feel like you're adventurous, go to Antarctica as part of an Antarctic research program. If you're an electrician or a carpenter or really have any useful trade, a doctor, you can, a chef, you can apply to go with your national program if there is one to Antarctica for a season and work on the ice in pretty similar conditions so you can breathe the air but if you go outside without your proper equipment you will die and you're living with a group of people in a very extreme environment doing work supporting a mission so that's fun but if you like me don't have a useful trade for antarctica <laughs> you can also follow your national or someone else's national antarctic research program on the internet through Twitter, through Instagram, and see what everyone's doing. And it's a wonderful way of kind of vicariously living in a very different world with a very different group of people doing very cool stuff. I, I, I love it. This is another thing that I hadn't thought of where my desire to, to go to space is, is all internal and personal. Um, and I haven't been thinking about the concept of working with teammates and coexisting in an unusual environment. It's just an, another level of thinking about it. It's fascinating to, to think bigger. <laughs> I have a list. I want to rattle okay. off really quickly okay. of other go, things you can do. So, you can do citizen or community science. There's a site called Zooniverse where you can help scientists by identifying craters on the moon, or you can swipe left and right on galaxies to say if they are or aren't a certain type of galaxy, which I love because if you're sitting, you know, on a bus and it, it, like just ditch the Tinder, <laughs> universes is where it's at. So that's Zooniverse. Okay. Um, you can follow Space News and on Twitter or um, on the internet, there are some great sites that keep you abreast of all of the latest happenings. My favorite is the Space Australia website, which I know is Australian, but it does do international coverage. And mm -hmm. that's run by uh, a guy called Rami Mandau and he's fantastic. You can get into science and space fiction. So there's the Red Mars series, which is great. You can go a bit sociological and watch um, Behind the Curve, which is the Flat Earth documentary on Netflix. Well worth a watch. Uh, Star Wars and Star Trek are actually great when it comes to understanding policy and governance challenges in space and conflict challenges as well. Mm -hmm. Other good books, Dr. Space Junk versus the Universe. 
was written <laughs> by an Australian space archaeologist, Associate Professor Alice Gorman, who is a delight and is also well worth following on Twitter. She is at Dr. Space Junk. And so that's a good one. And uh, obviously podcasts are good as well. Then there's astrophotography. And if you want to learn about that, my good mate Dylan O'Donnell, who lives in Byron Bay in Australia and has his own backyard observatory, does great YouTube videos and explains how to do astrophotography. So you can learn how to do that too. Model rockets. I launched something, haha, no pun intended, a couple of weeks ago called the Rona Rocket Club. Because in Australia, we call coronavirus the Rona. Uh, okay. um, and uh, I'm building a model rocket with a friend of mine who's an aerospace engineering student. And we just chat while we build a model rocket and you can watch it on YouTube and build along with us. So that's good fun. And then societies. So in Australia, there's the Australian Youth Aerospace Association and there's various space societies. All over the world, there are space societies. Hop on Google, hop on Facebook. If you're on Facebook, find your local space society and hang out with other nerds. And if you're 18 to 35, the Space Generation Advisory Council is where you want to be. I've done a lot of sort of traveling to conferences for space. So it's not space travel, but it's sort of meta space travel. And that was why I was going to be at the UN this year. We were presenting some advice to the UN on space sustainability on behalf of young people, the space generation. So if you're in that age bracket, you can definitely do that. That's the end of my list. That's all of my space travel advice. Those are such great ideas. Thank you. Um, You're welcome. Are, are people listening when you when you were going to the to the UN? Are the the people with power taking your ideas and and doing something with them? I think so. You know, this is this is one area where I do think that the voice of young people is absolutely being listened to. And the reason for that is that we talk about old space and new space mm. and old space was the My moon generation. landings, yeah. Sputnik, the cold war, mm -hmm. you know, and that's sort of over in a way. Governments aren't pouring huge amounts of money into space programs for prestige. Mm -hmm. So now it's, well, what are we doing with space? And it's very exciting being part of the new generation coming up in the space world because in a way it's one area of society where young people love baby boomers. And, <laughs> and I know that there's this thing with, you know, the baby boomers and the millennials, but in the space sector, mm -hmm. there is such an exchange of ideas, of expertise, of, philosophies on how we need to be doing things in space because the people who were part of old space or still still are part of the space community as well developed wisdom and expertise mm -hmm. and they were the pioneers of that generation you know when they were doing it the, the average age of the people working on the apollo missions at nasa was like 30 or something ridiculously young they were there doing that. And so now in a way they're loving living through the new space generation, being part of that journey and sharing with us. And personally, I love talking to them about, 
their experiences and what they've learned and what they think. So yeah, I, I, I do think that young people are really shaping our conversations about space and increasingly having a huge impact. Wow. So what are you excited about upcoming for your, for your career or for your podcast? What's, what's on your horizon? Oh, um, what am I not excited about? Okay, well, the first, <laughs> the first thing is I'm hoping to get my PhD written and hopefully turned into a book, ideally. Uh, I don't know what the time horizon will be on the book, but the PhD I'm hoping to get done by early 2021. And then after that, you know what? You know what, Liz? I am so excited that I don't know mm. what comes mm -hmm. next. Mm -hmm. I have a couple of different hats. So mm -hmm. I'm on the advisory council for the Space Industry Association of Australia. And, um, you know, I've got the podcast and I'm doing some video stuff on YouTube and all sorts of things. And I've had some really great opportunities. I, I've been asked to consult to people in space industry and also um, museums and things oh. about their exhibitions. And I'm part of a group with the Space Generation Advisory Council that is doing space ethics and human rights in space as its topic and so on. So, you know, I have a lot of balls in the air, if you will, that I'm juggling mm -hmm. at one time. And all of them, I think, are just linked by me finding them genuinely fascinating. So what's on the horizon for me? I don't know. You know, we've got this, this pandemic and the economy is probably going to tank and geopolitics seem to be ramping up and everyone's getting all very tense. You know, the US election coming up and that really does affect the rest of the world. And, uh, and, and in Australia, environmental issues are huge and, and all sorts of things are kind of around at the moment in the ether that uh, are making me sort of nervous for the future. But, but I am always super optimistic about just, oh, I don't know, just life is thrilling and, and, and just being here and being part of it. And even in the in even when it's awful, you know, even when <laughs> life is terrible and everything is falling apart, just the sheer miraculous nature of our existence and the fact that when you look back through history, pure chance has led to, you know, this person meeting that person and genetics going in different directions and, and, and just the infinitesimal possibility that I exist right now is, is so inspiring to me that I can't let myself get down about stuff. And, and even though I'm not sure, perhaps because I'm not sure what comes after the PhD or what, what's coming next with the podcast or any of those things, I'm just hanging on for the ride. And I think when I walked out of investment banking, I really turned my back on conventional safe paths, you know, on this idea that there's a ladder and you climb your ladder over your life and then you sit back in retirement with your possessions around you and you think, oh, wasn't that nice? Well, it's not for me. It's, I, and I don't judge if it's for you, but or for anyone listening, I should say. But for me, 
gosh, no, I have one life. And it's ridiculously short when you think about it in terms of cosmic timeframes. It's a blink of an eye. And I just, I just am so driven, you know, not, not by an end goal, but by the pursuit of the best that I can possibly achieve and, and what I can think about and contribute through my life to our collective understanding of ourselves and our place in space. Yeah. I so admire your approach and the way that you're looking at, at, at your life. I mean, the, and the, the enthusiasm and the curiosity, it, it thrills me to, 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 to know that you're in the world. It, it, is, it is really inspiring to speak to you. Well, thank you. My thanks to Annie Handmer. You can subscribe to the Space Junk podcast. The link is in the show notes. And so are all of the other excellent suggestions that she made. I invite everyone to tell me what you've always wanted to try. Also, please take a moment to fill out a brief survey so I can find out more about you. You'll find it at lizsumner.com survey. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find us. I'm Liz Sumner, reminding you to be bold, and thanks for listening.